Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. Well, there's just so much going on in the world, as you all know, and we do our best on the daily wrap-up and the rest of the work to, to keep up on all the madness out there today. But one of the stories that we have fallen away from because of how many important and serious topics are to cover is, is Syria in general. And it's as you guys know, it's very hard for me to not be covering anywhere where I think you know people need to be given a voice that don't have one. And we talked about Palestine and, and the obvious situations and the overlaps are one of the things we're going to get into today. And joining me to go over this in regard to an interesting overlap between the Wagner Group conversation and Syria, as again, and just what's going on in Syria that many aren't focusing on. And then some conversation around Ukraine, Zaporozhye power plant, and maybe some other things. And nobody better to have on to talk about this than Vanessa Bealy. It's always a pleasure to have you on. How are you? Oh, thanks, Ryan. It's been a long time. It's nice to be back on. It has. It has. You know, I can't, I was thinking the other day, I can't even remember. We've, we've probably done 20 different interviews over the years. You know, so, yeah, so, I know. <laughs> but I, every time you, every time you come on the show and, and, you know, you bring another, you know, you bring a perspective that most people don't get today, which blows me away because it's obviously the most genuine, honest and informed, but that's the way the world works today in the media field. But thank you for taking the time. Cause I know you're very busy. Now, oh, you're actually, you're, you're, you're on the ground in Syria. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been living here for four years now. This is my coming up to my fourth year. <laughs> Good. I just think that's always important to point out, you know, for people that are listening to somebody who lives in the UK that's never been to Syria. Tell us about what's going on in Syria. Yeah. Right. It's important to get that kind of perspective. But, you know, I'd, I'd like to start with in general, you know, what's the, the recent surge of discussion in Idlib. Which those on our on this platform have we've covered this. You and I've talked about this a lot. We've done articles, entire shows on what you know. One of the what what was the term? The largest terrorist hotspot since nine eleven. As they've said this before, but then yeah. oddly, it seems the U.S. government repeatedly protects the area. So you know, get, maybe give us a little background on that for those that don't know. But then let us know what's going on today for the audience that, that you know I haven't been covering it enough. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, okay, do you want to talk about the connection to the Prigozhin um, sort of uh, event that went on at the weekend also? Because it kind of, it ties in uh, very, very, it's very connected, in my opinion, because of the timing of events in Idlib. Oh, and absolutely. It's a little bit, yeah, it, it's a bit difficult to sort of talk about it, yeah, about what's happening now without mentioning this. And we'll come back to the whole Progozin uh, story afterwards as well and kind of pick that apart, hopefully. Sounds good. So, yeah, we'll start wherever um, you'd like. And, you know, I think, yeah. the, as you said, they all connect in interesting ways, but let the, the Progozin... So in your mind, that story is a precursor to what you're seeing in Syria? You, what started happening just before the Progozin event in my opinion, is connected to what happened um, for various reasons. So just to um, maybe reiterate the background to, to Idlib, first of all, Idlib, as you said, Brett McGurk described it as the largest al-Qaeda haven since 9-11. Uh, Ambassador Jeffries, who was Mike Pompeo's kind of point man on Syria under the Trump administration, described al-Qaeda as a U.S. asset, as, of course, did Jake Sullivan in the email to Hillary Clinton back in 2012. <laughs> um, and so you can safely say that the majority of Idlib, particularly the names that you're probably hearing now, which is Idlib City, Jishar al-Sugur, 
which was actually one of the scenes uh, back in 2012 of one of the worst massacres of civilians and Syrian Arab army soldiers by Al-Qaeda, Free Syrian Army, and all manner of other terrorist derivatives backed and sponsored by the US, the UK, the EU, and their various allies, of course, including um, Israel. But what for me was really interesting, and I only kind of pieced it together as the Progozin story was unraveling, was literally, I think, about four days before the whole mutiny coup, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I, I think it was pretty staged, by the way. Let me put that out here, <laughs> like, immediately. Um, before this all kicked off, the Syrian Arab army had actually started to move brigades of the Republican Guard to the north, um, stretching really from Aleppo across towards the currently um, protected by Syrian Arab army territory south of the M4. The M4 is the road that goes from Aleppo to Latakia and then also to Damascus. And at the moment, the Syrian Arab army and Russia have control of the area south of the M4. So people can, in effect, no longer use, they, they still can't use the M4 to go from Aleppo, Aleppo to Latakia because it's not safe. Uh, the terrorist groups that are still dominated by Al-Qaeda in Idlib, of course, you might know them now as HTS, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, they're headed up by um, Jolani. Jolani, of course, is the West's man in the northwest of Syria. <clears throat> um, and basically, um, the, the, the plan has been to retake the territory to the north of the M4 so that, again, Syria has control of that M4 highway. Mm -hmm. So literally days before Prigozhin kicked off, the army had moved to the north. And at the time, I remember thinking, okay, that's, that's great. You know, obviously, there's a military campaign coming. Then we had a number of terrorist attacks on civilian areas and civilian infrastructure. Two women and a kid were killed in Salhab, which is to the um, north of Hamar on the borders of southern Idlib. Uh, in Kadaha, in Latakia, Kadaha was actually the birthplace of Hafiz al-Assad, um, the president, the father of Bashar al-Assad. And there, there was a young agricultural engineer killed and his brother was injured in drone and rocket attacks by the terrorist groups in Idlib, basically. Now, who's supplying those drones and that technology to them? It's Turkey, a NATO member state. Right. Personally, I went to uh, Jurin two years ago, uh, which is on the border with the new front lines in southern Idlib. And we were actually targeted by shells. We know we were targeted because the shells were coming in at five meter um, spacing. So they were getting closer and closer to our position and we had to move. Why were they so um, accurate in their targeting? Because Turkey is providing both surveillance and attack drone technology, but also it's doing the surveillance itself. So Turkey is basically surveilling the area and then providing coordinates for attacks to the terrorist groups, right? So Turkey is actively involved. I think it has more than 30 bases in mm -hmm. Idlib. 
temporary and, and you know, relatively um, solid structure bases there. Um, and oh, sorry, go on. Well, I just want to say before, because it's interesting as we talk about this, there's definitely like different categories I find interesting and that we should poke into because the, Progr the Progrosian and Wagner group overlap. We de we're definitely get into that because it's so interesting yeah. how that plays out in the bigger scene. But before we get past that, just in regard to Idlib, because mm. I just it, these stories that just can't eat at me because, you know, we as you know, you've been talking about this for so many years and it's the same thing over <laughs> and over. And it's like we know what's going on there. And the, the average question for somebody who's been following this is, how does it make sense? Explain that to the average person. How is it the U.S. government is still supporting what is an open terrorist? You know, not every single location, as I understand it, or maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the locations in Idlib completely controlled by forces that they argue they're fighting against. And, and actually, to bring into this point, I was reading this earlier today that basically – uh, the Biden administration is now working on agreements between two of these insurgent groups. And I guess the stated purpose is just to stop Assad from leading and being the president. And so this shifts so many conversations. Is it about stopping ISIS? Is it about controlling the oil? Is it just yeah. about, you know, so what are your thoughts on all that? And how does that even legally make sense? Well, uh, so basically you're asking, why is the U.S. continuing its campaign against Syria, right? Essentially, yes, but and, and, then, and then making agreements with terrorist groups on the surface, it seems, and how that plays. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, I guess it's not really a question, and we're all just acknowledging how crazy that looks, but <laughs> they're selling it to people as if they're still, what, fighting for freedom? For, for democracy? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're selling it that there is a political alternative to hmm. President Assad. And of course, what have they been trying to do? I mean, Victoria Newland, who of course is famous for starting. Um, the coup and causing the massacres in um, in Odessa and in um, Mariupol during the coup in um, Ukraine in 2014. I think it was in I think it was last year that she was talking about partitioning Syria to the northeast and creating the so-called autonomous region, which would be controlled by the Kurdish countries that are also under the control predominantly of the US government, but also the UK is involved there, right, in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. um, and in the Northeast, what is the US doing? As we know, it's stealing 80% of Syrian oil. The remaining 20% barely makes it to Damascus. We're still suffering huge energy deprivation here. Um, and it's also stealing agricultural resources. The Northeast is, is kind of one of the breadbaskets of Syria, but also so is the Northwest. And of course, Al-Qaeda in the Northwest is also processing the oil that's being stolen from the Syrian people in the Northeast by the U.S. It's being transported to sort of central Syria, whereby the U.S., and by the way, the U.S. has just established... Um, a kind of old new base. It's basically re-erected one of its um, bases close to Raqqa in um, central Syria in preparation, I think, for the upcoming military campaign by the Syrian Arab army. So the U.S. has bases in the northeast and central Syria and, of course, in the southeast uh, on the border with Iraq and Jordan. It's now talking about establishing an air base in Anbar in Iraq, which is, again, on the border with Syria and increasing military presence and footprint in, in the Anbar, Anbar military base. So it's increasing its military footprint in the surrounding countries, in Jordan, in Iraq, in Turkey, even at the Intralek base, et cetera. So it's, it's building up its military presence outside Syria. Right. Inside Syria, it has around 
they always claim around 900 if they claim at all i don't know if you remember the u.s state department spokesperson basically denying all presence of or was it no it was u.n it was the UN guy that was basically saying there, there are no um, US military in Syria. And we were all right. like, what? <laughs> and it was that, I would think it was a Chinese journalist, right, that pushed yeah, back. And it, right, just, yes, so yes, it yes. just shows you how it's just, you know, the, 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 not to be crude, but the thing that keeps rolling in my head as we talk about all this is, you know, pissing on you and telling you it's raining. It's like the, everything we're talking about, everything mm -hmm. is just, it's just narrative versus the obvious reality. And it's, it's painful to watch. It's extraordinary. I mean, Twitter is just like a, a cesspit of lies from various U.S. State Department officials, U.N. envoys, German envoys to Syria. They're all just kind of banking on people's ignorance on Syria to accept the continued kind of tsunami of lies that they're putting out there. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah. I saw one the other day sort of saying something about uh, Rukman Camp, but I was like, you know, Rukman Camp is an ISIS recruitment and training center. Why are you even trying to put this narrative out there when we all know it's not true? Right. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the U.S. has brought HIMARS in around its Al-Tanaf base. It has a 55-kilometer exclusion zone in which it trains various armed groups, including. ISIS in the use of HIMARS, in the use of, um, you know, uh, man pads, <clears throat> etc. So effectively, from there, it can target Damascus because the HIMARS has an, a, a, basically a maximum range of about 300 kilometers. So it's possible to target the outskirts of Damascus from Al-Tanaf. Israel regularly uses the U.S. Al-Tanaf base. Um, for target practice against Damascus and against other areas of um, Syria, of course, which has yeah. been ongoing for a long time, particularly since the earthquake in February. I don't think we've spoken since then, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but Israel almost immediately attacked Damascus. I think it was only a few days after the earthquake hit. Right. And it, it targeted Aleppo um, airport, which, of course, was the humanitarian relief hub. Um, for the victims of the earthquake in Aleppo and Latakia and Hama and all the surrounding areas, right? This is why people um, were still buried under the rubble and, and, and were yeah. on top of that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. terrific. Well, also sanctions. You know, right. we can't forget the effect of sanctions because I, I did quite a few reports on this because I went to all the earthquake zones and the real Syria civil defense, so not mm. the white helmet frauds, but the real Syria civil defense were telling me it took them much, much longer than, than it should have done to, to dig bodies out because they don't have the equipment. They don't have the heavy lifting equipment. They don't have, they don't even have the fuel for many of the vehicles that they needed to use, right? I mean, it, 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 this was probably the most horrifying for me because during the war, okay, we knew this, but somehow because everything was happening so fast, you know, people dealt with it. And, and because when a missile hits, you know exactly where the bodies are, mm. right? right? It's relatively easy to, to find them and get them out. In the earthquake, they were everywhere. I mean, I went to Aleppo and it was horrifying. People had run out of their houses in very narrow streets thinking they were escaping. And then, of course, as they ran out, all the buildings collapsed on top of them. So it was incredibly difficult for the civil defense to try and locate them even if they were still alive, you know.
Yeah, and, and this is kind of why I, that, that mm-hmm. brought up that first point is that it's just I, if there, if there, it's interesting to see how many people are kind of entering a lot of different fields, you know, media, news, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. foreign policy. And, you know, there's new people in this field today that are at least willing mm-hmm. to entertain other perspectives. And there are people that are new to this and haven't heard all these other conversations. And it's just kind of mind blowing to take a step back for them because all of a sudden it lives in the news and people are like, what's this? You know, they haven't discovered it before. <laughs> yeah. And it's cr- and to see that their, their stated stance whether we're still pretending this is about, you know, 9-11 or, you know, whatever, the, the mission creep into the other countries, it, it's on the surface internationally illegal. Everybody knows mm-hmm. that, you know, and it just somehow continues to go forward as they steal things from the country. And, you know, so this is where it begins to be, become interesting about the overlap, because I think mm-hmm. we're I think more than any but any conversation in foreign policy, people are kind of attuned to how aggressively the lie is coming out of Ukraine. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so, yeah, and so people are kind of opening their eyes to bigger things now. So let's get into that. If you, and unless you've got any other points you want to share on, on Syria and Idlib. No, I mean, I think all, all I wanted to is just to come back to this Prigozhin point because for right. me it's really important. Um, so basically what happened, the Syrian Arab army mobilized it, set up its artillery and so on um, to the north of Aleppo, ready for the campaign. And the campaign stretches towards the northeast, to the north, and to the northwest, right? Um, And then the terrorists started to do what they always do when the Syrian army advances. They start targeting and killing and injuring civilians and destroying civilian infrastructure. So they don't engage with the military. They engage with civilians in the hope that by killing more civilians, they will slow down the advance of the Syrian Arab army. This is a pattern that we've seen for the last 12 years without deviation, right? But then this is this is where it gets really interesting. So all of this was happening. Suddenly, Prigozhin kicked off. The whole story kicked off, right? And while all of this was happening, and while NATO media and NATO clearly thought this was it, you know, it was <laughs> Putin was going to be toppled, the whole thing, the whole campaign in Ukraine was going to fall about, and, and they couldn't contain their glee. But they also took their attention away from Syria, Right. Mm. And at that moment, the Russian uh, Air Force and Syrian artillery opened fire and they started hammering their ammunition dumps, the military headquarters, the drone factories, um, the incoming supply lines, all the weapons coming through Turkey into Syria, um, the bases. Right. It, It was quite incredible. I mean, I haven't seen this intense a bombing campaign by Russia, combined, of course, with Syrian um, artillery since Aleppo in 2016. Yeah, so this is um, one of their headquarters with weapons and ammunition. Um, I think on one of the days shortly after the Bregozin episode, between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., there was something like 35 hits by the Russian Air Force. So, you know, this is... And at the same time, of course, what are the terrorists doing? They're still sending drones, or armed drone suicide drones into civilian areas. So, as always, they're responding um, with threatening and attacking uh, civilians. Not They're not responding to the, the military campaign, which is typical. And, of course, then what do we see Western officials start doing? I mean, there was actually a ridiculous tweet put out by the UN envoy um, to Syria. Oh, my God. 
But hold on, Vanessa. We can clearly see a crate full of tomatoes. So you're wrong, right? Obviously, this is, you know, it's just kind of, I mean, I, mean, the- I know I shouldn't laugh, you know, because for sure, civilians like they always are, are going to be caught up in these conflicts and they are going to be injured. But when a doctor, Dan Stomescu from Romania, puts out this tweet and expects it to be taken seriously after 12 years of media lies. And of course, who produced this story? The White Helmets, right. the Syria Civil Defense, the fake one, are back again, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I, you know, I was talking to Kivork Almasian about it when it came out and, and he was like, I've looked everywhere for pictures of bodies or of something that demonstrates that this was a market. Right. He said, I found one picture of a boy that was perched on top of the pile of tomatoes and told to look sad. I mean, he had they didn't even put the usual kind of rubble makeup on. He was just there. And, yeah. and this guy is literally tweeting out saying, I think he said 40 women and X number of children and so on. Mm. And I'm like, OK, where does this information even come from? You're right. putting it out as fact when you have done nothing to investigate it, like, come on, stop this now. And afterwards, of course, when we did double check it, it's not a market. It was a military uh, center. They'd taken over a school as they had done, obviously, a hundred million times previously in Aleppo, in Homs, in, in Eastern Ghouta, in Dada, etc. It's what they do. And they turned it into a, a military center. But of course, then what do you get? The last hospital, the last school, the last incubator, right. the last cat and so on, you know. Classic CNN nonsense, you know, like the, this is the kind of thing that, they, you know, uh, people should do their own research. Sure. Always do this. Don't just blindly take either of our words for it. But when you go through and read this kind of stuff, it's just the kind of thing that makes you depressed about where all this is. When you, you know, it's, like yeah. you said, you're taking at face value statements that come from people that have at the very least been proven to have been caught lying more than once. That's not true. You're you know? well made them once, more than once. I mean, yeah. you know, effectively, the White Helmets have produced the weapons of mass destruction narrative in Syria, which is the chemical weapons. Right. And right. they've been proven to be lying every single time, right? Particularly in Duma in 2018, the OPCW dissident inspectors proved that they were lying, that they made it up. The doctors in Duma told us that the White Helmets made it all up. Right. So, you know, you have UK Foreign Office leaked documents. You have endless reams of evidence that they fabricated the majority of the stories that are being used to criminalize the Syrian government. But they still keep going. And the problem is, as you said, it's cyclical. So people come in and and they start following you on Ukraine or they come in and they start following you on COVID. And then suddenly something happens in Idlib and they're like, oh, I don't know what's happening in Idlib. And so, therefore, the confusion begins all over again, mm-hmm. right? Right. Well, because we've, the... we've kind of had a gap between right. when people were really following Syria because it was, you know, headline news. Right. And then you've had COVID, you've had Ukraine, you've got China, you've got endless other stories that have kind of bumped it to the back of the queue. Yep. And so now you've got people that have got interested in alternative media and who are completely lost on Syria to some degree. Right. But, but, but thank God they have the work, a body of work like yours where they can actually, if they care enough, they can go back and look. And I think that's what a lot mm. of people are doing. But my, mm. I think there's still people that are kind of caught in the middle that get, you know, they, they go to where their comfort zone is. Well, we're going to go back yeah. to the, the quasi independence or the corporate media and we're going to get fed this yeah. kind of half yeah. story. 
But what, what mm-hmm. I tend to think is, I mean, let's, this is one of the things I think gets overlooked. And this should not be the only thing people ask themselves, but taking something like this in particular, what is the benefit of Russia doing this? That's always something we should ask. It doesn't make any sense for the Russian government to, you know, same like we're going to get into in a minute, the Zaporozhye power plant. It's just a narrative. And yes, it's certainly possible that it could be an accident or deliberate to blame the other side, but facts certainly matter. You know, so what do you even know what their narrative is for why Russia would do something like this in a place that they're defending? Well, no, except it just allows the terrorists to start crying victim and saying, look, 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 Russia's um, bombing civilians, while in reality, of course, the terrorists themselves are bombing civilians. But this is always ignored. I mean, multiple times. You know, I've written about how Amnesty has sort of feigned outrage over terrorists being bombed or or eliminated Mm. while ignoring the fact that those same terrorists had conducted chemical attacks or or, uh, attacks against civilians in the neighboring um, districts. Right. Right. So, you know, this is an ongoing pattern and it's the same pattern that we see in Ukraine, this projection of Western crimes against Russia, you know, war is war. And as I've said before, um, it's, it's not a clean process. Right. You know, people are killed in this process, but who is instigating these wars? Exactly. Who is maintaining and sustaining these wars? Who is weaponizing terrorist groups and Nazis and every other kind of fanatic and extremist, including Israel, of course, Right. Um, against indigenous peoples or against resistant peoples, peoples that do not want to be dictated to by the West. You ask me why the U.S. is still in Syria, because for them, Syria is one, historically loyal to the Soviet Union and to Russia, which mm-hmm. they hate. So it's a personal reason. It's a vindictive reason, particularly on, on the part of the U.K. But also it's perceived that Syria is the gateway to Eurasia. It's it's the hub of all international trade. And don't forget that one of the reasons the war started is because President Assad refused the Qatari pipeline, which was a US project, in favor of the Iranian pipeline, which is very much a Russian-linked project, right? So this is all about the war with Russia and also China, because Syria is is instrumental to China's Belt and uh, Road Initiative. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just about you know. the global control preeminence yeah. right, in the U.S. That, I mean, that's it all. And, and that when you really dig past even just barely past the surface, you very quickly see that that's even the stated discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about because that then somehow translates to being able to spread freedom, which never seems to happen anyway. You know, it's mm-hmm. very interesting. But let, let's bring this back to the overlap. Mm-hmm. This is, again, like you, that you feel is very important. So we see mm-hmm. I, I saw this uh, today or yesterday. Wagner fighters reportedly detained and offices raided in Syria. So what, how does this overlap? And so explain this for somebody who, again, who's kind of new to this. What, how, what do you make of this? How, Wagner, the overlap with Syria and Ukraine, what does that mean? I have no, I, I, I actually think that's fake news. <laughs> I possibly, there's a lot of. Nobody, nobody has said anything to me here about this. Um, and actually, uh, there are very few uh, Wagner group fighters left in Syria or even in Africa, because I checked this out um, last week and the majority of them had gone to Ukraine because, Mm. of course, Ragnar were also um, pivotal to defeating 
Western terrorism again, both ISIS and Al-Qaeda in many of the uh, Central Africa Republic and the Sahel and so on, right? Mm. Um, and the majority of them were basically sent from Syria and from Africa to Ukraine. Um, and so actually the, there's very few left here. And uh, if I'm honest, the majority of both Russian and Syrian military here are utterly convinced that, that this was um, a bit of a staging event. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that is, there's still a discussion to be had. In my view, I think the Kremlin knew it was going to happen. I think, personally, I think Prigozhin uh, was kind of in on it. And I think he double-crossed Western intelligence agencies. Right. Why do I think that? Because there are so many holes in the whole story. I mean, this ridiculous idea that he's going to go from Rostov um, to Moscow, which is 13 hours in a normal car. And if you're talking a military convoy traveling that distance, you're talking more than 24 hours, mm -hmm. right? With no air cover, none. And these stories of planes being brought down, I mean, again, I, I, you know, I would hesitate to say I don't believe it, but I'm finding it hard to get solid evidence on it, mm. right? And the majority of the stories were being put out by Ukrainian telegram channels, Ukrainian media, almost in a, in a sense to kind of whip up um, the, the, the fury uh, from Moscow, the Kremlin and the army against uh, Wagner. Right. If you look at the images from, from Rostov when Wagner allegedly rolled in, well, the reality is, again, Seymour Hirsch published something today. And if his source is to be believed in American intelligence, um, Wagner Group had already left Donbass and gone to just north of Rostov, where they'd been given a, a sort of a encampment area to to divulge them of all of their or divest them sorry, of all of their heavy weapons and and to distribute them basically. So two thousand had already gone into Rostov, etc. Hmm. Um, and then the fact that I I do kind of have it on quite good authority that Prigozhin has not only gone to Belarus but he has a very nice contract there. Thank you very much. And he's now training uh, Belarus troops and a, a large number of the Wagner uh, commandos have gone with him. And of course, we know in Belarus, there's the threat of the nuclear, the NATO nuclear base and of Poland and so on and so forth. And, and apparently, you know, the, the Polish, certain Polish elements are now freaking out because they've got Wagner on their border. Right. It put, right. It put, it, it, <laughs> one thing that Steve pointed out is that, you know, whether this was an accident or deliberate, it very clearly put them strategically in a very important position, yeah. you know, so you can, exactly. I actually, yeah. I agree with you before we go back to the overlap is I think mm. that it, based on everything we can see it, the, the consequences don't even remotely add up with the action that supposedly took place. So no. I, that's my, that's what I sense from this is that this was something, oh, and then here's this again, th there's a lot of this flying around and for this, this actual article as well, there's so much of this that's just kind of being stated <laughs> and floated around. So it, yeah. it showed discernment guys, cause we don't know. And that's the point with these stories, but the uh, this also, and I don't trust for a second the Moscow time. <laughs> but the argument is yeah. they're reporting that they're saying that this other general was arrested. Now, if again yeah, yeah. that's possible, my my thought would be 
that that would be, you know, again, that it was about sussing out the people that might have actually been yeah. working with the U.S. government. And I, you know, exactly. as we saw with in Venezuela, we've talked about even in Syria mm-hmm. before that the U.S. government tends to overplay its hand and oversee its its <laughs> own influence. And, and yeah. you know, they were already had Wikipedia pages made about the civil war in Russia. <laughs> it had already ended. Oh, my God. It's very Yeah, clear. no, but that, that was actually, uh, I, I don't know, that was a parody, this one. But when mm. you actually go to the Wikipedia page, it almost reads exactly like the parody page, mm. right? It's it's like Wagner Rebellion 2023 and all well, of this. Yeah, and if they're... you look at the headlines, look at Anne Applebaum, like my least favorite person in, well, one of my least favorite people in the world because of the sheer damage that she did in Syria, for the, you know, when she's writing for the Atlantic. But look at what, you know, her headlines, civil war, you know, Putin to be toppled and right. all of these headlines, you know, because they always are completely in sync. Mm-hmm. All of them, you know, Putin on the brink, Putin faces the abyss. And now what are they saying? Putin weakened. Putin right. has definitely been weakened. by this. No, he's I mean, reinforced his lines, right? Yep. He's reinforced because why do you think all the Chechen brigade? were coming to Rostov. And where have they gone? Did he, did he just go poof and they disappeared into thin air? And why didn't NATO do anything about them? Because they were like, great, he's putting down the rebellion. There's going to be an art, you know, there's going to be war. There's going to be this. No one was hurt in Rostov. You had street sweepers still continuing. You had people hugging Wagner when they left. Right? Yeah. I it mean, was- it's like, and, and for me, the biggest thing was I, I was told um, in no uncertain terms that basically what it was all about was, as we talked about, this, this using this as a kind of slate of hand um, to reinforce their lines, to prepare for any Ukrainian counteroffensive and without any interference from NATO because NATO was kind of going, well, oh, they're dealing with the insurrection. They don't know what we're doing. You know, and Prigozhin to be sent to Belarus, even if we are speculating now, let's look at the results. Is mm-hmm. Putin weakened? No, he's strengthened, in my opinion, because what happens now, he's seen exactly how people reacted. So he knows who the fifth columnists are right, right. in Moscow, in the military institutions and so on, right? The fact that they are, I think what they're trying to do is obfuscate. They're trying to point the finger at Sorovkin when in reality they're covering up for whoever else the Kremlin has really got their fingers on, right? Yeah. This, is, this is what the media does. Right. And actually Moscow has put out a denial anyway. It's put out a denial saying, of course we haven't done that. But they don't care. They'll just continue with this story because it's a good story. Right. Yeah. Well, they were playing. The, if, if that's correct, they played their lines. He's a terrorist. He's a betrayer. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're like high fiving and everything's fine. You know, it's like clearly it's, that doesn't really add well, up. When was it? It was an open democracy. You know, the Soros media mm. put out this incredible meme which said something like the West was captivated by Prigozhin. I was like, really? Like 48 hours ago, ago Wagner were the worst criminals in the world. That's they were being hit on by Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, the UN. Every Western regime was trying to criminalize them, right? Now suddenly right. the West is captivated by Prigozhin. This was one of the and, most important parts to me. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, and, and I think the, the second line was something like, 
the media pundits don't really know what to say. And I, and I tweeted it. I said, that's because it's gone off script. Right. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it's really, I actually completely agree with that. You know, this, this is such an important part of this though, because, and it's, it's, it's a very easy thing to see. It's basic hypocrisy, right? I think even uh, Amasi put this out, but the point is that, you know, it's terrorists and literally the next day they're freedom fighters on these same accounts and then went back to terrorists the next day. And it's just like, how, so these are the real Nazis we're being told, not the Ukraine ones that are all doing the Nazi stuff, but these ones are the, the, the real Nazis. And they're the biggest threat. They're white supremacists. I mean, they've been framed with all this. And then suddenly they're the people you want to support when they go against the. It just shows you that they don't think anything is sacred. These people are followers. And, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just really sad to see. But I, I agree. I think this was a play. And I think they got exposed mm-hmm. for it all. But so how do you think this plays in? So you explain for me the overlap to Syria. How do you think this plays oh, well, in? The overlap to Syria was quite simply because as soon as the Pagosian thing started, so they knew that the media and, and the regimes in the West would be totally focused on this because they were expecting it to go one way, right? Mm-hmm. That's when Russia started its, its heavy bombing campaign. Oh, okay. So while everyone is distracted, right. they can basically, and, and to the point where there was actually um, an incursion by a, an American warplane into the deconfliction zone in Idlib, and Russia had to buzz it away. So, so America suddenly figured out, shit, you know, we've lost. And I'll, I'll tell you something else really interesting. General Milley had uh, planned to go to Israel and Jordan. Now, that, that's kind of interesting to me because this means, is he going to, to Israel and Jordan? Jordan, remember, there's a huge um, American military presence, and it's one of the countries where they are building up their military footprint to kind of threaten um, Syria from outside, right? right? Israel, of course, we know. I mean, <laughs> Israel bombs us on a fairly regular basis. The only reason they're not doing it at the moment is because they're occupied with the resistance inside the occupied territories. Right. So he cancelled his visit to Israel and Jordan and shot back to the US. Jake Sullivan, who was supposed to be going to Denmark, cancelled went back to the States. So this immediately also made me think, mm, it's not gone to plan, because I think Millie was going to Israel to, to build up the pressure on Syria. I think he was going to Israel and Jordan to start, and then suddenly Russia started the bombing campaign in Idlib against their pet terrorists in, in Idlib, you know, and their hope of partitioning the Northwest, just as they hoped to partition the Northeast, and even the North section um, by by Turkey, who again we can't forget, it's it's a NATO member state. As much of a rogue as it is, and Erdogan is, it's still a NATO member state. So effectively, for the U.S., if if the North sort of corridor is is occupied by Turkey and its terrorist proxies, that's fine. Right, right. It doesn't that that plays along with their partitioning, vulcanization of Syria plan that Kerry talked about back in. 2016, I think. Right. So, you know, it, it's for me, all of these happenings w- were not coincidence. 
Right. Well, see, that's what I wanted to see. That's kind of what I was getting to before. And so I, I, I get what you're saying. So essentially, they just took advantage of what was going on in, in yeah. Ukraine to act in Syria. But so do you think that there is any more to that, though? Do you think possibly what was executed was designed to give them that opportunity or something yeah. like that? Or is yeah. that what you're thinking? No, that's how I feel. Interesting. Because for them to mobilize to that extent, they would have to know in advance. You right. couldn't mobilize an entire Syrian Arab army brigade in advance. Or you, you couldn't, for example, if the Prigozhin thing kicks off, suddenly move all the Syrian army to this area, set them all up with their artillery. And you couldn't. Mm -hmm. It would have to be done in advance. So why did they pick that time to do it? So in my opinion, whether Prigozhin was a double agent or not, the Kremlin knew it was going to happen. Yeah, right. And then so that's that's it. The multi. So yeah. they executed at the same time and took advantage yeah. of this, played the United States to then open up an opportunity in Syria. That's very strategically played. I think that's interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. Everything on the table yeah. perfectly adds up with that, I would say. Yeah. And I think these stories that are kind of circulating now, you've got to remember, there is still a fifth column inside Syria, right? Mm -hmm. Even within high, well, within high level that are still working to sabotage peace here in lockstep with the West and with Israel. And so these kind of stories that are trying to sort of portray um, a danger to Syria from within, from the Wagner group. I don't know if you remember also in 2018, there was the story in the Northeast um, that Wagner had um, surrounded US troops in one of the oil fields and allegedly Russia didn't give them the air support that they needed. And so um, the U.S. basically bombed them, bombed their convoy and killed a number of Wagner uh, fighters. I don't know if you remember this story. Sounds familiar. Um, and I'm wondering if it was actually at that point that the West perceived that maybe they could infiltrate Wagner and maybe they could influence Wagner against Russia because they are, well, we say that they're a mercenary group, but actually they were established by Russian intelligence and they are funded by the Russian government. Even Putin mentioned that, I think, in the last 48 hours. So there is a straight, it, it's not like Blackwater or Academy as they now are, or, you know, the multiple mercenary groups that, that work with uh, UK, US, EU governments, right? Um, <clears throat> that are real mercenaries in, in the full terminology you know these guys were deeply connected to russia so i think and i think it's larry johnson who's former cia and special forces who who came up with the idea that actually prigozhin was in on it and a few people said to me but he's too stupid like how would he i said he doesn't need to be clever because the intelligence will tell him what he's got to do and he's only got to act it out and he's not a very good actor to be honest <laughs> You know, he's, and, 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 and that's another thing. I mean, if you look at this claim um, that Russia had bombed the, the Wagner group before they went to Rostov and so on. And he's now basically also retracted that whole story, by the way. Right. So, you know, and, and the video... I think he says it was a protest now, right? That's the stance he's taken, that it was more Yeah, of a it was a protest that he didn't want um, PMC included into the Russian army, which, of course, is now exactly what's happened, apart from those that don't want to, and they've gone to Belarus. So to me, it, it just, when you look at the result, the result is all in Russia's favor. 
Right. I don't see anything in NATO's favor in this at all. Exactly. Right. And you know, and, and the counteroffensive is a, so. But but this is where the danger point comes in for me. This is where I think these these warnings of false flags in Zaporozhia are becoming more kind of red alert. You know, and I'm I'm really becoming kind of a bit scared of this now. I'm right there with you. We were talking about this a bit before we started, and this is exactly where my goes with this, is that now, and, and even before we even get, it's actually starting with this, and this is this, you, actually, you and I talked about this in regard to Syria with exactly yeah. the same game, where they go, if anybody bombs or carries out a gas attack, we're going to blame Assad, and it, it serves as a, uh, saying, hey, do this, and we'll blame mm. the other guy. I mean, or at least that's how it can be taken. So here's mm. Lindsey Graham essentially saying exactly that, that they're going to blame them, you know, so yeah. it, it's really crazy, and then here's the Example of Zelensky on yeah. the record saying that Russia is going to bomb this plant, which they have control of. So break this well, down. Good. Also, I mean, I don't know if you've got the most uh, recent information. There is a report in Yahoo, which comes from a Ukrainian media outlet, which the name has escaped me. But the Yahoo report is, is out there, I think, from yesterday that they're going to be running drills. And we all know what happens when, when the West starts running drills tomorrow um, in the area. Oh, I wrote it down because Russian names still don't register with me. In the Nikopol district, um, which is about 16 kilometers away from Zaporozhia. And the drills are for nuclear attack or for reactor fallout, right? And funnily enough, Greta Thunberg is in... Kiev today meeting with Zelensky and so on, right? Mm. Um, and so the minute that I hear drills and, and it, you know, anything like this, I, I'm extremely worried. We've already seen how many false flags, you know, from Bakhmut to the um, maternity hospital, and they've just been getting incrementally bigger, you know, from, from um, the oil pipeline, gas pipeline, um, the Kirsch Bridge, uh, the the hydro power plant etc the dam you know right uh, so uh, <laughs> I think that yeah well yeah exactly yeah yeah the the Nord Stream bomber that brilliant meme of Joe Biden with the hoodie on <laughs> but you know it is scary because we're also getting um, reports of potential chemical weapons coming into Idlib. Now, this is something I've been warning about for a long time because after the earthquake on the 6th of February, the UK in particular started pouring millions uh, of uh, dollars, well, sterling dollars, whatever, um, and equipment, equipment in inverted commas, to the White Helmets in Idlib. And of course, we know that the White Helmets are an auxiliary of Al-Qaeda. Um, and they were, this equipment was coming in in these containers, closed containers. And we're now hearing, I think it was yesterday, a report in Sputnik Arabic, that these containers, which are being handled by guys with gloves and kind of hazmat suit um, equipment and so on, are being moved to an unknown destination. And, you know, so, of course, this is exactly, they, they don't deviate from, from the script depending on which country they're in. And at the same time, we're hearing about these drills tomorrow um, in the Zaporozhia area. And, and I'm genuinely worried because I think the West, we're largely relying on this whole Prigozhin drama 
to at least destabilize Russian leadership or Russian military, right? It failed dismally. It was all over in what was it, 12 hours. Regardless of, you know, the nitty gritty of it all, it's finished. And as we've talked about, the benefit is all to Russia, not none of it to NATO. I mean, in the Seymour Hirsch um, article, which came out today, I, I thought it was in a way quite horrible. Like he was talking about the fact that Russia now has control of 40,000 square miles of Ukrainian territory. And the source that he was talking to in presumably American intelligence basically said rather wryly, it will take Ukraine 117 years at the rate they're going to regain this territory from Russia. So we know what is Ukraine? To me, it's, it's a depopulation project for the West. Hmm. What they want to do with Ukraine afterwards, I don't know. It could be all manner of things. There's an Israeli connection. There's a Zionist connection. Right. Um, the majority of the territory anyway has been sold off by Zelensky to the likes of Monsanto and so on. It's been a money laundering scheme, a child trafficking scheme, right. uh, organ trading scheme, prostitution scheme. You know, it's it's like a it's like the black hole of Europe, Ukraine, and it I has actually, been even before this. I actually just read a really disgusting story about how they were shipping uh, yeah. Christian relics over into Europe from from Ukraine. You know, it's yeah. just like, just to add to that, just this wholesale. You know, why does anybody think that makes sense if it's trying to protect anything or, you know, ensure it's not right. It's the same. The thing is, this is ISIS tactics, right? Because right. this is exactly what they've done in Syria. More than one million artifacts stolen by Western backed terrorists from Syria and distributed who knows where yeah. on the black market. And, and this is an entire campaign against Christianity. Also, that's you know, exactly. I'm not a religious person. I have my faith, but I'm, I'm, I'm not adhered to any one religion. But having been in Syria since 2016, the target has been the cleansing of Christian communities from the Middle East. And we're seeing the same thing now in Ukraine by these fanatic contras, by these fanatic proxies of the, of the US, UK, and not forgetting they've, they've sort of weaponized Nazis and incubated Nazis and welcomed Nazis into high-level positions, including allowing them to establish anti-communist organizations like the VOC that are now being, of course, used against China, right? Right. Um, right. Victims right. Radio, of communism. Radio Free Liberty and Radio Free Ukraine, yeah. all these different groups. Yeah. I was literally just going back to the original Project Aerodynamic documents and, and newer versions of what they let yeah. out. And it, it was run by an individual that was from the Ukrainian Organization for Ukrainian Nationalists and he became a reporter. And, and you go mm -hmm. watch Paul's career. I mean, these were mainstream people. You know, it's just yeah. it's so clear. You could tie it right back to their yeah, information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's Sydney crazy. Gottlieb, who was brought in um, to, to, you know, run MK Ultra and all of this and to test LSD and, and uh, horrible, horrible, horrible things that they have done in collaboration with fanatic extremism. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Nazis or Zionists or Muslim Brotherhood or Salafists. makes no difference. They're in partnership with the West. Right. And that's what people need to understand. Whatever is conducting evil in the world today and in Ukraine, believe me, there's the, some of the darkest, most horrible. I mean, they are literally, while they're pointing the finger at Russia, and by the way, I've been to these children's camps in the east of Russia. 
you couldn't imagine children being taken better care of than what I saw there, being given trauma uh, counseling, allowed to continue their education um, according to the curriculum of where they came from, et cetera, et cetera. They're not being brainwashed. They're being taken care of, while at the same time, of course, Ukrainian elements are literally kidnapping children. I mean, Eva right. Bartlett has, has reported on this from on the ground. Right. They are taking kids and taking um, their organs, just as they've done in Kosovo, just as they've done in Syria. And it's the same gangs, by the way. It's the same ring as was operating in 1999 in Pristina, then again in Syria, and now in Ukraine. There's a Kosovo um, thread running through all of this. Right, Albanian warlords, Al Qaeda. Don't forget the KLA was Al Qaeda, and Albanian mafia that are now occupying Kosovo and persecuting the, the Serbian minority, which is Christian, in the north of Kosovo. Okay, so you know this is this is the thing. There are common threads running through everything, yep. and once you once you pick those out, and you can start seeing them in every single conflict that the West is, is persecuting, you start to understand what's going on, what's, what's the, the bigger picture here. I don't claim to understand everything, but, but I can see the patterns, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And it's, it's clear that there's interconnectivity, like you mentioned, between the Zionist regime and these same efforts yeah. and the overlap. And, and almost none of this really has to do with morals, religious perspectives. It's all like no. a cloud that's being used yeah. to push this under. And it's, it's, it's sad. But I, I do think, and you tell me what you think on this, that more and more people than I've ever seen are feeling confident enough to at least ask questions about it. You know, that Overton window on the Israel conversation has been completely shattered as far as I can tell. So that's, mm. that's at least, you know, hopeful, I would argue. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you understand the connection between Ukraine and Israel, then it becomes even clearer, because if you go back to Simon Petlura, um, who in the 1920s became the first president of the um, Ukrainian Republic, who then basically allied himself with uh, Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky was an early probably more uh, extreme Zionist than many of the Zionists now in Israel. It's the sort of revisionist Zionism, which is all about expansionism. Mm-hmm. So Petlura and Jabotinsky were allied against Russia. Like Jabotinsky was allowed to develop his own Jewish militia on the basis that if Russia attacked them, they would uh, ally against Russia. But Petlura had carried out some of the worst massacres an ethnic cleansing of Jews and communists, right? Now, Netanyahu, guess what? He's a revisionist Zionist. He's a follower of Jabotinsky. So that's why you start to see the finance minister, Smotrich, in Paris start talking about Transjordan, taking territory, about taking territory to Damascus, because you now have an expansionist, revisionist Zionist in control in Israel. And he's developing the far right far more than any other leadership. It's, you know, it's, Netanyahu was always portrayed as a moderate, but now you're really seeing what he's all about. And, and the Ukraine-Zionist connection is massive. Right. The majority of IDF leadership and Zionist leadership came from Ukraine. Golda Meir was born in, in Kiev. 
And this is what's so hard for some people to wrap their mind around is that, you know, yeah. narratives don't make sense, except when you actually just look at the facts, right? Where yeah. in 2018, rights yeah. groups in, in Israel were going, why are you arming Nazi groups? I mean, this should entirely shake people's understanding of this story. If you just, just this one discussion to see that they, mm. and, and I've, as I show people to understand where they're literally talking about the Azov movement. And mm. what, what people to understand is Kolomoisky, who at one yeah. point, I forget if he is still the, the head of the World Jewish Congress, is the head backer of the Azov movement, also exactly. completely financed all of Zelensky's campaign. So there's an obvious yeah. overlap here to what people are now admitting are clearly neo-Nazis and fascists. The Israeli government at this point is openly fascist. I think the what the Religious Zionism Party has been called extremist, even terrorist, by some of these rights groups in Israel. And now suddenly things mm-hmm. are being framed differently. But yeah, I, I think people mm-hmm. just need to understand, as you're, as you're making clear here, Vanessa, that this stuff interconnects across multiple fields. And, and this is why, to bring it back to this discussion, and we can, we can end on this point in general about the, the power plant and what's going to happen mm-hmm. there. You know, so what what... what I worry, as you said before, that all of this stuff is spinning out of control. I think they're aware that they're losing control of these narratives, that people are beginning to ask questions they never have before. And that worries me in the sense that something bigger could take place. I wanted to show this. this, Of course, it's on an account that was removed. But this was an example that an earlier attack on the power plant by Ukraine they blamed on Russia. You could very clearly see Russia is not using U.S. You know, of course, you could argue that it was a false flag. But, you know, you could prove, as we've done before, that that's not what happened. (laughs) Russia's in control of the territory. It doesn't make sense for them to be doing so. But, you know, where do you see this going? And, you know, let's let's talk to end about the lies around Mm -hmm. this. This is the Narfal character pushing the the line directly from the corporate media about what's going on there. You know, do you think it's a a real threat that we could see an attack on this blamed on Russia? Yeah, I mean, this is it's it's really interesting because when I went to Donbass in November last year to um, observe the elections, for which, by the way, I was personally sanctioned by, by the French. Um, uh, I was speaking to Russian officials. You know, I was speaking to people um, who who have an idea of what's going on, and they were all kind of dismissing the whole nuclear war thing. They were all saying, "No, we'll you know we'll never end up in this situation because the West isn't that crazy. I mean, they're not going to wipe out half the Earth." for the sake of defeating Russia, that wouldn't make sense. And they were literally, you know, very blasé about it, right? If I talk to those same people now, they are so worried and they are so um, afraid of the, the extent to which the West is going to push this. And, and they, because people need to understand, I mean, I've worked with Russian military, Russian officials and so on here in Syria since I've been coming here. Not worked with them, but, you know, worked alongside them in the various campaigns and so on. I kind of, to some degree, know how they think. It's a very conservative country. In a way, it's a very honorable country, contrary to, to, you know, Western opinion and Western diatribe in the media. As people they tend to have a code of honor and they sort of expect like they did with the Minsk agreement. They sort of expect the West to honor agreements. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, they try to maintain this high level diplomacy. And so for them, the fact that the West is, is really capable of pushing to, to nuclear, a, a nuclear event, let's say is, is beyond their comprehension, and it's terrifying for them. You know, so much of what the West is doing, I'm talking to many 
um, you know, foreign office officials when I'm trying to get information or trying to get quotes and so on. Things like the, the euthanasia in Canada, the, the whole WHO transgender education stuff, you know, it, it completely, they're completely sort of hair in headlights. They, don't, they, they really cannot get to grasp the, the sheer evil in the West. They're really struggling with it. So from, from my perspective, this, will, this attack will never come from Russia. Never. Just as a chemical attack would never come from the Syrian army against their own people. This is, this is beyond, you know, it, it's so, it's, it's horrible, actually, that people are being deceived into thinking that this is possible when in reality their own governments would wipe them all out, just as they're wiping out Ukrainians right. by pushing them to fight superior air power, superior artillery, superior missiles. They're killing them. They're depopulating Ukraine. It's ethnic cleansing done by NATO, not, not by Russia. There wouldn't be a war if it wasn't for NATO, right? Yeah. Well, what's, what's interesting is, is that you can... <laughs> The narrative is essentially that, you know, well, the U.S. wouldn't do that, right? That's what they go, moral stance. Oh, that would never happen. We wouldn't, you know, that's, we're just defending freedom and democracy. But well, Russia, you're arguing, is apparently going to bomb a location it controls and effectively hurt both its territory and Ukraine that it's trying, you're arguing, is trying to take over. And that somehow makes sense because, well, he's crazy. That's, that's, yeah. that's the argument, right? But so if yeah. all you're saying is that well, you can prove the alternative or, or in reverse that the U.S. government is acting in very, in very you know, in, in, it's lunacy, what they're doing in so many different locations, the U.S. government. So it just shows you that they're, it, in, in and of itself, their narrative falls flat. You know, I don't think anybody would take action that would destroy their immediate interest just because. I've always thought that was hard to wrap my mind around. Well, it, it's exactly like Syria. Why, why would the Syrian government or the Syrian army use chemical weapons right. against civilians in an area they're literally on the verge of liberating? Right. And give them the excuse, as always, to, to act. Exactly. They're like, if they do this, and then we'll do, you know, just, it's such an you obvious, know, it's a game, you know? And so I agree yeah. with you. But, but the terrifying thing, of course, if there is any, and I think what they're talking about is, um, uh, I don't know what you call them, but the nuclear waste storage units, I think that's what they're talking about hitting. Mm -hmm. So it would presumably release um, nuclear waste. I'm not a, a nuclear expert. You would have to go to someone like um, uh, Professor Chris Busby or someone like that, who I'm sure is following very closely what's going on and see what he's saying. Um, then you're talking about Europe, Donbass, Russia. God knows how far the contamination would go, just as the contamination from depleted uranium that is being supplied by the UK and the US and has been for a long time, I believe, and has been used in Syria, in Iraq, in, in Serbia, etc. You know, the long-term effects of this is also terrifying in itself, but actual nuclear fallout i mean you know it's 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 terrifying for me and you've got an, an american president that thinks putin's lost the war in iraq i mean this is this is no but honestly this is the <laughs> it's ridiculous i mean and and, and so, i mean so the the argument is that you're he's going to take this action that destroys his own interest because he's losing a war that we can all tell he's not losing like it just it's it's a lie on top of a lie even to, oh. 
at the end of the day, I think the average person is becoming acutely aware that it's not like you just said, the, the area that it controls, they've lost this narrative. And so that's what really worries me. Now, do you think the worry in general would be because the U.S. government might actually carry out something like that or that the they've armed and mobilized the most crazies out there, the most extremists out there and they might do something to push the U.S. hand? I know we're at, we're kind of theorizing here, but what do you think seems more likely? Um, to, in all honesty, you know, it's it's either UK intelligence or US intelligence. I mean, the thing is, what you have to remember is, whatever crazies that they are supporting, those crazies are made in their image. Otherwise, they wouldn't be supporting them, right? So whether they kind of, you know, for plausible deniability, they use some of the crazies to go and do it or whether there's a rogue crazy that's just going to go and blow himself up at, at the nuclear reactor. Um, I mean, that's what they do with suicide bombers. You know, in Aleppo, what did they do? They took over a, a mental hospital, a psychiatric hospital, and they used the psychiatric patients as suicide bombers against their own people because they had no idea what was going on. So, yes, that is what they do. If you look at it from that perspective, you're right. You know, the suicide bombers in, in Syria were drugged up with, with Captagon that they're now accusing Syria of making. Of course, it has right. nothing to do with the U.S. at all. Um, but they would drug them up and send them off on their missions, you know, and they would happily die. Are the Nazis quite as fanatic as that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they're as ideologi ideologically driven. They're cruel mm. and they are driven against you know, the, from a sense of ethnic cleansing, but are they ideological enough to kind of blow themselves up? I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know any Nazis. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, look, as I've said, they're happy to send Ukrainians to die. They're happy to kill millions in Iraq and Libya, um, you know, Latin America, Nicaragua. I mean, the, the list is endless. Palestine, Syria, right? None of those deaths meant anything to them. So none of the deaths from vaccines, none of the deaths from, from you know, COVID mistreatment, etc., uh, elderly being shut in nursing homes to die. None of that meant anything to them. So unfortunately, I don't think this means anything to them either. Right. If they wipe out a bit of the planet and a few of the people, that's a benefit to them. I, you know, I I'm sorry. I know I hate saying it because part of I, me doesn't want to believe it. I really don't, you know. That's what I was going to say. Is I hate that I believe. I hate that I agree with you. I hate that we're in a position where we're literally yeah. discussing nuclear holocaust. Is like, yeah, that logically makes sense. It's just, it's just so outside it's the realm of, you know. But, but this is why this is so important because these people are literally that extreme. And we're not talking about the people on the ground in Syria. We're talking about the governments that are arming and mobilizing these mm -hmm. people. And so, you know, again, I just, I really, I value your work more than you know, Vanessa. And I'm glad. Yeah, that look at, look at what happened today. Sorry, in Palestine. No, this point blank shooting of a young guy that was being arrested. He just took the gun and shot him. That's the West. Hmm. That's the West. They've created all of these extremist fanatic organizations and they've continued to fund them and give them the weapons to do harm. Yeah. 
And now, sadly, it feels like it's been turned inward. I mean, it's always really been pointed inward, both from a UK and US perspective, you know, on the populations. But I feel like now it's gotten to an extreme where, you know, whether we're talking about the trans movement conversation or where these things seem to be going, it's everything's been weaponized and it's and it's alarming. But Mm -hmm. on that same note, I genuinely feel that this is because we are taking control of the narrative because people are seeing yeah. through what's going on. So it's hard to see the light in all of that, but I really believe that we need to keep pushing and it's not because things are about to collapse more than ever. It's because we're this close to really taking back what's ours. And, you know, I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but you know, what, what harm is there in, in looking to the positive, you know? So again, thank you for, for joining me as always. And we, again, I always say this every time, but I need to make <laughs> habit you know, as, as often as possible because you always give this insight that people just don't get anywhere else. So thank you. Anything else you want to leave us with before we take off today? No, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think if we want to end on a positive lo- note, look at how Syria after 12 years of being ravaged by the worst has come around to being, you know, basically back in what is an emerging pan-Arabism right, that the West has been trying to destroy for the last few decades. And so, yeah, there, there is that hope at the end of the tunnel that, that if you are steadfast in, in your truth, it doesn't have to be the truth. We're all looking for the truth. I don't think we ever actually find it. We just find elements of it and put pieces together. Mm-hmm. But if you stand in your truth and your principles and your morals, right, that's that's what we need right now people who who are centered and grounded and strong and prepared to to stay in that space whatever gets thrown at us and i think we're only kind of we're not even in the eye of the storm yet i don't think yeah yeah i agree you know and i you're right i mean we all just individually need to strive to be better every day morally actions you take you know it's all we can do you know and it's a thank you for being here and uh, you know, make sure you check out her work. You want to drop your, your social media links or your website, people to check out. Yeah. I mean, I guess the main one these days is Substack, um, But of course on Twitter and telegram, I'm, yeah. I'm rarely on anything else these days, partly because I don't have time, but just because telegram is, is kind of a lot more relevant than, than Twitter. The Twitter is just, I don't know. Like, you're better off getting banned from it, to be honest. <laughs> I half agree with you today. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for being here again. And as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person.